<laughs> Imagine being offered the family you've always wished for. Uh, some of you guys, many of you guys are in university or your home. A lot of those up there are also still on reading week this week. But imagine, uh, imagine graduating university and getting a career in your field. What? Amazing. Imagine uh, the spouse you've always wanted, the possessions beyond your dreams, prosperity and peace. And uh, so we've been tracking through the book of, of Genesis with the patriarchs. And we've seen a lot in their, in their lives. We've seen a lot in their lives, particularly how they've dealt with, uh, with adversary, uh, with adversity. We've, we've seen how they've dealt with suffering and, and trials. We've seen how they've dealt with division and, and sin and offense. But how one deals with prosperity can be just as great or even more difficult of a test. And it's really important for us Christians in the West, here in Canada, to consider the test of prosperity. Because none of us, I don't know if anybody in in our congregation, and I would highly doubt anybody in our congregation, will suffer to the extent that, for example, Joseph suffered. Like, I don't know any of your stories where, you know, your brothers tried to kill you and then settled for selling you into slavery, where you were a slave for seven years where you were falsely accused and then unjustly imprisoned for another couple of years. Like for most, I, I don't know of any of your, your guys' stories that you'll come to that sort of dealing with that sort of issue, with that sort of suffering. And so maybe when, you, when we've been reading through the book of Genesis, sometimes I guess the words from the page of the Bible can kind of go over us a little bit. Like I'm never going to suffer like Joseph suffers. But in Canada... We may have to struggle with the type of prosperity that Jacob is offered in this chapter. But we may have to struggle with this idea that we may actually get to the point where we have what we ever helped that we can set up to attain. We deal in our culture more with, you know, affluence and the, the problem of affluence than we do with the problem of scarcity. And so, we do need to think through this idea of prosperity and and how, you know, we live in the most safe, comfortable, wealthy, and well-fed society. One of the greatest um, examples of prosperity that the world's ever known. And if you think about it, that is actually what's being set in front of Jacob in this chapter. Um, that's actually what's being set in front of Jacob in this chapter. And so we're going to look at uh, some of this today. And last week, hey, Kaden, don't worry about the PowerPoint either. In fact, just put up the, the screen here. Uh, I must have sent the wrong PowerPoint. Man, I'm not having a good day today. We need to stop and pray. Lord, help us. Help me. Help our thoughts. Help the service. Amen. So yeah, just, uh, you can just close the PowerPoint up on the screen. Just turn it off completely. Sure. So like, uh, like the, the saints of old, take out this papery scroll that you hold in your hand and open up with me to Genesis chapter 45. 
Yes. I see you guys. You guys are reaching forward for the Bibles. This is good, good stuff. Genesis 45. Some of you guys might have a cell phone that has a Bible on your cell phone. You can look around at that as well. In Genesis 45. Genesis, the, the passage we're going to look at, what I read earlier, starts with um, Joseph's brothers returning to Jacob with a promise of prosperity. Listen to this promise of prosperity that uh, that that Pharaoh offers Jacob's family. It says in verse 16, when the report that Joseph and his brothers had reconciled, when that report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers had come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh is commanding Joseph to bring back to his family the message that if they come to Egypt, all of their material needs will be taken care of. That if they come to Egypt, they can live in the best of the land. If they come to Egypt, they can live in in great prosperity. And you have to consider why the brothers came to Egypt in the first place. The brothers came to Egypt because the famine in the land was so great that they, they considered that if they were to stay in the land of Canaan, they literally would die. And so now Pharaoh is saying, Joseph, tell your brothers, go back, grab your dad, come back here, and you don't have to think about anything. I will take care of you. He, he literally says, have no concern for your goods, for all the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh is exceedingly generous here. It must have been really interesting for the children of Israel to hear to, to, to hear Moses write this account. Right? The only Pharaoh that they knew who were fleeing from Pharaoh were the hard taskmasters. And so they're getting this picture of at one point in time, the Pharaohs were generous to our people. And I wonder if uh, the original audience, the, the Israelites who were fleeing from Pharaoh, I wonder if at this point they'd be suspect of Pharaoh and of the prosperity of Egypt, knowing what would come out of it, you know, the, the years of slavery that would follow. But in any case, Joseph sends the equivalent of a moving van up to his father. He takes he takes these empty wagons, and his brothers, or he doesn't, his brothers are sent up with some empty wagons and with some provisions for the journey. And this caravan, loaded with food and resources, heads northeast into the land of Canaan. And remember again, this is in the middle of a severe famine. So you can imagine... Pharaoh's wagons, loaded with food and loaded with resources, this caravan of these 11 brothers and maybe servants and other people that are accompanying them, this huge caravan traveling with Pharaoh's seal of approval up into the land of Canaan. You can imagine what a sight that would have been. And possibly uh, Jacob himself getting up one day and just seeing this caravan coming over the horizon. Going, I wonder what this is all about. Uh, you ever hear that, that, that who, who watches Broadway musicals, that one Oklahoma? Has that song, Oh Ho, the Wells Fargo Wagon is a coming down the street, oh please let it be for me. I wonder if that's what Jacob was thinking. He probably had no idea that this would be for him. And then, uh, and then he sees his sons leading the procession. He sees his sons. But that's not the lead story. 
Now Jacob must have marveled at the gifts his son had brought back to him from Egypt. Nothing can prepare him for what he heard next. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 25, it says, They went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. And it wasn't the wealth, and it wasn't the possessions, it wasn't the empty wagons to carry him back to Egypt that got his heart so excited, that revived his heart. It was this, that his son, who had, he had he'd written off his dead 20 years ago, he hears now his son is alive. He doesn't even believe it at first. His heart just is like, come on, you guys have lied. I mean, these sons of his, you've lied to me before. But he begins to believe him, and his heart revives within him that his son... Joseph is alive. And so Jacob sets out for Egypt. And think about what waits for him in Egypt. Isn't it everything that he's ever dreamed of? His son, alive. His, his family, you know, reunited. Going from brokenhearted to, to now unity, togetherness, going from famine in the land of Canaan to dwelling in the best of the land, living in a land of excess, living off the excess of the land, and that, he, and that poverty for, for Jacob and his family is going to be a thing of the past. And so he leaves and he goes down to, to pursue Joseph and to pursue the prosperity in Egypt. And I want to pause here to look at what he does in chapter 46. What Jacob does is before he pursues the prosperity that has been promised to him, he takes a break and he pauses. And before he just runs headlong down into Egypt to pursue the prosperity that's been promised to him, he stops in a town called Beersheba. In chapter 46, verse 1, it says, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. Now, Beersheba, we've heard of in Scripture before in Genesis. Beersheba is Jacob's hometown. It's where he was born. It's where, it's where he was brought up. He was, he was born there and he was brought up there until, uh, until he fled from Esau after he, uh, stole Esau's birth, birthright and blessing. But that's, that's where Jacob is from. It's where he grew up. It's where he saw his dad actually um, worship the Lord there, his father Isaac. And so it's a significant place for him, knowing that it's going to be the last time possibly that he sees his hometown and showing his family. Possibly should not. A couple of years ago, my mom recently moved out of our hometown. So a couple of years ago, uh, I took my kids, and I knew it was like going to be the last time I, I might go back to my hometown. So it was awesome. I got to take my kids, my wife. We just we just spent some time. We spent like it was like last summer, the summer before. We spent like a week in my hometown. And I showed them all the places we used to like, hang out when I was kids and stuff like that. I don't know if Jacob does any of that, but uh, what he does do is he he worships the God of his father Isaac there. 
Notice it says he doesn't, it doesn't say he built an altar before offering sacrifices. We're actually told earlier on in the book of Genesis that Isaac, his father, had already built an altar in Beersheba. And so it's likely that Jacob pauses here and worships the God of his fathers from the altar that his father had built there at Beersheba. And so it's possible, it's likely that Jacob understands Beersheba as having this familial and spiritual significance. But that's not the only reason why Beersheba is important. Beersheba is important because it's the last city before leaving Canaan. It's just right on the southern border. Later in the book of Judges, it says that the territory of Israel extended from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And so this is the, 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 the furthest south you can go, the furthest on the way to Egypt you can go before leaving this land that has been promised to the children of Israel. And remember, I've told you this before as we've been going through this, this book, geography is important in the book of Genesis. There's this theme that from Genesis chapter 12, starting in Genesis chapter 12, when God said to Abraham, leave your land, leave your, leave your, your home country, and leave your family behind and go to the land that I will show you. And ever since that time in Genesis chapter 12, um, their proximity to the land has been an indicator, in a sense, of, of their spiritual obedience to God. Where they, they went to, they went to Canaan, uh, but, but at various times they departed from Canaan. And, and ever since that time, a recurring theme in Genesis has been obedience and blessing and faith are tied into the land of promise, and departure from the land is tied to disobedience or lack of faith. And so here's the question. If Jacob pauses at the southern border of Canaan before going into Egypt, here's this question. How can he leave the land of promise to go to this land of promised prosperity. How can he be assured of God's blessing if he was leaving Canaan behind? And more than this, Jacob's leaving Canaan to go to Egypt. Right? He's going to Egypt. Egypt, he, we, we, we've seen the patriarchs go to Egypt before. First Abraham went because of the famine that was in Canaan. And it was a very painful experience, one that seemed to be contrary to God's word. And, and later, Isaac considered, Jacob's father considered going to Egypt when there was a famine. And God, in Genesis chapter 26, actually says, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So Isaac, Jacob's father, was actually in Beersheba, because of a famine, ready to head down to Egypt, and God appeared to him and said, do not go to Egypt. And so consider where you are, consider now you're Jacob at this time. You've been told by your sons that your son Joseph, who you lost 20 years ago and thought was dead, and in fact Jacob so many times during this intervening period had said, just let me go to Sheol and die. Jacob's given up all hope, he's given up all life. And now his sons have returned from Egypt and said, Joseph is here, and Joseph's alive, Joseph's down in Egypt, Joseph's going to provide for us. And Jacob starts making his way to Egypt, and he gets to Beersheba, and he gets to the place where his father's altar is made, and suddenly Jacob is terrified to go to Egypt. And suddenly Jacob has to decide, what is he going to do? And so he stops in Beersheba, and he pauses, and he worships, 
And he brings sacrifices and he waits. And, and so this is part of this, this pause. Part of this pause is Jacob, I think, being, being uh, realizing, is he free to go to Egypt? Is he, is he going, is, is this going to be disobedience? Is this going to be obedience? And it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of Moses, who was also kind of wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And at one point, God appears to Moses and tells Moses, it's about time for you, Moses, to go forward into the promised land. And Moses actually says to God, God, I do not want to go unless I know, unless you assure me that you are with me, I do not want to go even into Canaan. Moses says, he says in Exodus 33, uh, 15, he says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says to God, if your presence is not with me, if you're not with me, God, I do not want to go. I don't want to get blessing. I don't want to get prosperity. It means nothing if your presence is not with us. Moses says to God, what, what separates us as a people is not our prosperity, is not our blessing, is not our riches. What separates us as a people is the presence of you, God, in our midst. And I'm not setting, setting a foot further until I know that you're with me. I'm imagining that Jacob's prayer must be similar. God, you told my father, do not go to Egypt when, when he was considering a famine, and now I'm here, and I want to see Joseph, God, but I, I can't go any further than this. And God actually, in his grace, speaks to Jacob. In verse 2, chapter 46, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And can you imagine even greater than the message that his brothers brought to him? That Joseph is alive and he's well and Joseph's waiting for him to provide from down to Egypt. Even as great as that must have been, how great this must have been. Where he goes down to Beersheba, the place where God had actually stopped his father from going to Egypt. He makes sacrifices to the Lord. His desire is to be with his son in Egypt. But he, in obedience, pauses before the Lord and waits on his voice. And then he hears God say, yes, Jacob. You can go. Don't be afraid, he says, to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. God tells him not to be afraid, that he'll be with him. He tells them. He tells Jacob, and he tells all of Jacob's children, the Israelites, right, that not only will Israel sojourn in Egypt, but that they'll be brought out, out again, that they'll be made into a great nation. And, and really what he's being told here, and what's important for those who Moses is writing to, is that he's being told here that the Israelites 
settlement in Egypt, the Israelites, the period where they immigrated to Egypt, and that whole time period, it, it ends up being you know, more than a couple hundred years, is not a mistake. It's not a wrong term. It's not outside of God's will or God's plan, but that it's part of God's ongoing shepherding of them as a nation. They're, they're going down into Egypt, and they're coming up. That, that the Lord not only allows Jacob to go down to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph, but that he'll be there in Egypt with Jacob and Joseph until bringing them off. I want to think about this a little bit more in the idea of our own lives. I want to think about this, this idea that Jacob even being told and having this amazing promise of prosperity set before him. I want to think about the spiritual discipline it took to even just pause. Right? So many of us, if we were presented with that sort of opportunity, like that sort of promise, like think about your own career possibly. Think of your own career. Like if you were offered your dream job tomorrow, if you were offered your dream, maybe you've been wanting to you know, live in a certain place and you're offered tomorrow all that you thought, this is what I wanted. It might be in relationship. It might be like, no, this is this is what I've, I've just been dreamed of this sort of relationship. And if you were offered it tomorrow, how many of us would just rush headlong into? Oh, God's answered my prayers. There, you know, I'm, I'm going right. How many of us would actually take the spiritual discipline to to pause, to stop, to discern, to wait? We're gonna take the next couple of years, uh, not years, next couple of weeks. No. To, to consider uh, Israel's kind of sojourn, their, their settlement in Egypt. It's kind of what the next kind of focus of is in uh, the book of Genesis. But I, I want to stop here and pause here just to think about this pause a little bit more and consider some things that we might be wise to pause and ponder before we rush headlong in to prosperity. And I want to take it from um, Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually has a lot to say about pursuing prosperity. He has a lot to say that I think would be good for us to pause and reflect on and think about as we are offered opportunities in our lives. Right, some of you guys have, have made those life transitions and have gone, you've immigrated to Canada, for example, or you've, you know, you've made these months. So here are some things that, you, that I, I think we should take some time and pause and think about, particularly if you are in a period of your life where you are thinking about another chapter. What should I study? Where should I go to university? What, what's my next job to be? Here are some things to pause and to ponder before pursuing prosperity. Because we're warned by Jesus that not all that appears to be prosperity is the kingdom. We are warned by Jesus that not all that looks like success is God's will for us, and what God wants of us. And so Matthew chapter 6, God, Jesus actually teaches us a lot about faith in Matthew chapter 6, as it relates to prosperity. And there's four things that Jesus teaches us to kind of consider, to pause and consider about prosperity as we think, as opportunities come up. The first one, they're all P's because I'm a pastor and that's what we do. The first one is permanence. As you're pausing and considering as you've got an opportunity in front of you and prosperity in front of you, the 
first thing to consider is permanence. Matthew 6.19 is where we're starting. Matthew 6.19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One thing to consider to pause before pursuing and running headlong in to prosperity is just to consider the permanence of, or the impermanence thereof, of the things of the world. Later in, in the New Testament, um, Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy's working among the churches. Timothy's actually training, or Paul's actually training Timothy what to teach and what to lay down in the churches. And Paul says this. He says, as, the rich, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I wish that verse was up there, because I, I need you guys to like think on it and reflect on it, so if you can look at it in your scriptures, that would be awesome. It's First Timothy Chapter 6, verse 17. You want to write it down and look at it at home. It's a great verse. As for the rich in this present age. So these are rich people. These are prosperous people in the church that Paul is instructing Timothy to teach. This is us in Canada. Right? We all are prosperous to, to a great level of degree. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Do not be proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And I love this verse because it, it doesn't only it, it doesn't only doesn't only warn us about the impermanence of riches, right? As, as he calls it, the uncertainty of riches. It doesn't just warn us about the uncertainty of riches. It also says that God is the one who gives us all things to enjoy. And so we don't we don't need to be guilty about when God gives us our, gives us blessings either, but we are not to trust in them. We're not to trust in the uncertainty of them. In fact, later he says the next verse he says they are the rich. We in the church are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the uh, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I was, in our Sunday school class, we were talking about this verse, and we are talking about, like, we think of people who are prosperous, of people who are successful. I mean, my my stereotype image of that is this guy in his yacht, right? Like, just tooling around in their yacht, you know, kicking back, listening to the yacht rock, and like just kind of cruising down the canal, I don't know what it is. And then going, sitting back with your friends and going, hey man, this is the life. I love what Paul instructs Timothy. Teach them to set their hope on God that they may find what is truly life. If you set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, on the impermanence of these things that moth and rust destroy, you're investing your life in things that will not last. And so pause for a moment before you pursue and rush headlong into prosperity. Think about, am I investing in, am I pursuing in 
the things that will last. Not being guilty of the things you've been blessed with or God has granted to you. God has given the God who has given you all things to enjoy. But is that what you're pouring yourself into? Investing yourself into the things that will not last. Because the second thing Jesus teaches to consider about prosperity is its pull. What I mean by pull is that pull of our life, that as we're pursuing these things, these things are actually pursuing us. That there's actually a spiritual warfare component in some of this. As it says, as Jesus says in verse 21, starting in, in Matthew chapter 6 again, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, and then Jesus says this, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And he kind of explains what he's saying here, because that's a little confusing to me. He says, says it more plainly, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What he's saying there about the eye is that the things that we look at, the things that we look at flood our soul and actually reveal what is in our soul. Is, is that which captures the eye, is that which captures our heart. And, and what Jesus is saying, number one, is don't trust in the impermanence of the prosperity the world offers. But number two, be very careful and guard your heart because if you're, if you're consumed by these things, if you're laying up the treasures on earth rather than thinking of the treasures in heaven, you, your eye is being consumed by those things and it's revealing the darkness within your heart. It's revealing this spiritual pull, this, this tug of war, because you can't both serve God and serve money. You can serve God and use money. You can't serve God and serve money. And so consider the pull. And that's something that we don't, we don't tend to think of often. We don't tend to think of the opportunity that's in front of me, and I see this as a good opportunity, but if I go in that route, how will that pull and attract my soul? Guard your soul. Little children, it says at the end of James, keep yourself from idols. Guard yourself that the pull of prosperity does not overshadow the pull of God in our lives. The third thing Jesus teaches us to consider about prosperity is peace. Peace. Matthew 6.25 Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They need... They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, and they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of this field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, 
And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So another thing to pause and reflect on is, as, as opportunity is set in front of us and we're considering prosperity, is, is not just the impermanence of things, that, that we need to be seeking through the things that will last, not the things that will not, not just the pull of how this is going to actually impact my soul, but actually to consider, it, am I pursuing this out of just this fear? Am I pursuing this out of anxiety? Am I pursuing it out of just, I do not trust God. And what, what, what Jesus actually says here to them is he says, listen, when you're pursuing, when you're running after all these things out of that sort of fear and anxiety, you're acting like those who do not know God. The Gentiles, right? He says that even the Gentiles run after these things. So consider peace. Consider peace. And the last thing, and the main thing, I should say, the main thing, and all these other things are summed up in this, Jesus teaches us to consider about prosperity as priority. And it's the verse that we all know. Seek, you guys know it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's the message. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, so, so Jacob gets this amazing news. He gets a caravan sent by Pharaoh to his front door. A, a, think about that. A, a caravan sent by Pharaoh to his front door, loaded up with stuff. He's in the midst of the famine. At his front door comes this caravan with food, with clothing, with, with all these resources, and with the message, Joseph is waiting for you in Egypt. Come on down here, and, and we'll give you the best of the land. You get the best place to live. You don't have to worry about anything. And Jacob, I really believe Jacob pauses in Beersheba because he's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That he will not go to Egypt until he hears from God. Have no fear. Don't fear about going down to Egypt. I will be with you wherever you go. And I will bring you up from there. Priority. Jesus teaches priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things. Be added unto you. We, uh, we prayed through the Eighth Commandment today. Thou shalt not steal. What I said was this, uh, this commandment teaches us a contentment. A contentment. Contentment to trust God to meet my needs. Not to take it from my own hand. A contentment to work hard, to labor hard. In fact, a contentment to labor hard so that I might have, so that I can share with others. I love Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Think about this. Some of you guys, this might be a new verse to you, but I love this verse. Think of the priority here in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 to 9. The, 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 uh, the, person, the writer of the Proverbs says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and, lie, and lying. That's the first thing. Remove from me falsehood and lying. The second thing, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now why does he say this? Here's here's a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Why does he say this? 
Here's, here's why. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Give me not, don't give me, if I, don't give me too many riches, God, that I might be satisfied, that I might just be complacent. I might be full, well fed, deny you, say, God's the one who did this? Lest I be full, deny you, say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The godliness with contentment is of great value. The priority that, that, that whether God blesses me with much, whether he blesses me with little, the priority that my life is a seeking after the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. The, the priority of actually, of actually seeking God's will above our own good. And, and the, 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 the fact of the matter is that is what Jesus has done for us, for our sake. Jesus, for our own sake, has left behind the riches of heaven. And it says in the Second Corinthians 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now he's not obviously speaking of material prosperity there. He's speaking of the, the spiritual prosperity of that, that, that Jesus Christ being God, being the very nature of God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but he, but he emptied himself of that stature, of that position, and he came and he took upon the form of a servant. For our sake he became poor, so that as we, as we recognize our need of God, we might become rich. I don't know what uh, I don't know what opportunities I don't know what prosperity may be set before you I don't know what decisions you're making in your life but I pray that uh, the words of Christ might encourage you that the, the model of Jacob may encourage you to take a pause to seek first the kingdom of God Heavenly Father we uh, 